Sudah. Take your time in getting set up. I'll just go ahead and call the case. Uh, our last case today is number 22-13669, Maria Eugenia Blanco versus Anan Adrian Samuel et al. Mr. Zidel, whenever you're ready. Thank you, Judge Jordan. Uh, good morning, Jay Zidel. On behalf of the appellant, I will be splitting my time with uh, Mrs. Poe from the Department of Labor. <clears throat> uh, Ms. Blanco, asked the court to reverse summary judgment entered against her uh, based on the DOL's 2013 final rule. Ms. Blanco was a shift worker. Uh, she came at night uh, or during the evening to night hours to babysit and to watch over the uh, appellee's children. Um, she was hired. Uh, she came at the beginning of her shift with her overnight bag she left at the end of her shift with the overnight bag. And she had no key uh, to the appellee's residence. Um, she was uh, a shift worker. And the district court found, uh, in spite of the fact that she didn't live in with the appellees, that she was nevertheless a live-in uh, employee because she resided. And it was this work resided that caused or spawned uh, the controversy in this case and, and the appeal that we're arguing today. Um, can, I, can I ask you a, just a broad overall question? I'm going to ask Ms. Poe the same question and Mr. Butler too. Everybody refers to this final rule, but the majority of the stuff that everybody's relying on is not part of the rule. It's the preamble, exactly. right? Correct. So it's not codified. It's not. I know that it's issued and we look at it and all that, but it's it's not the part that everybody's fighting about and quoting is not the rule. It's the preamble to the rule, right? Bingo. Okay, got it. Exactly. And, and that's another point. I mean, this isn't a CFR. This is not a regulation. This is the, D the DOL trying uh, to clarify questions from different groups, at least as, as far as this appeal is concerned, is what constitutes a live-in worker. In order for a live-in worker to give up their rights to overtime pay, they have to get some benefit in addition to just having work. Uh, all of the regulations that I've been able to find, uh, especially the 785.23, et cetera, et cetera, that is a minimum. The live-in worker must enjoy some periods of time of solace uh, to herself uh, that she enjoys completely free of her work duties. Uh, many times this exemption includes a, a room or a separate room for the worker to enjoy as well so that rent is in effect paid for the worker by the employing family. Um, now, <clears throat> the district court uh, literally had to, for the lack of a better phrase, bend over backwards to try to squeeze Miss Blanco into this uh, live-in exemption when she did not live with this family. Uh, the, even the final rule itself, if we just take the, the language uh, of the final rule and the preamble, the major effect of the final rule is that more domestic service workers will be protected by the FLSA's minimum wage overtime and record keeping requirements. This order just flies in the face of that general purpose of the rule if we're only to consider this rule and ignore decades of the DOL uh, and, and the CFRs requiring many, many uh, different things that Ms. Blanco did not enjoy in order to be exempt. For example, 783.23 of the CFR um, says that for a live-in worker, and I quote part of the language, um, is not considered working all the time that he or she is on the premises. Well, Ms. Blanco was. 
And so it's clear that these other regulations require at a minimum some free time. Ms. Blanca was always with the kids and the defendants, had uh, the, the appellees had a lot of kids. They had four kids during the relevant time period. Ms. Blanco slept in a room with all four for over a year of the two plus year period of time that she's claiming overtime until they moved to another house uh, where she only slept with the two uh, youngest girls. But is your contention that you're entitled to summary judgment or, yes. that, the issue, or that the issue should be resolved by a jury? No, we, we are asking this court to A, find that she's not exempt as a live-in employee, that she did not reside with the employers. And number two, to find that they were employers, even though they disavowed it and said they weren't, the, the facts are clear that Miss Blanco was economically dependent on them and they controlled her through a group chat with all the nannies, et cetera. I'm gonna give over the rest to Miss Poe because my time is up. All right, thank, thank you very much. Thank you. Before you do that, because you're Miss um, Blanco's lawyer, what about this thing that the district court uses a lot uh, about that she slept there and she admitted she slept there and that he treats it as a judicial admission? I don't know whether it is or not, but that seemed, it seemed to me without all of that, there'd be a fact issue, whether she's sleeping or not sleeping. She says she was, was never sleeping, it was half awake. The parents said, no, she didn't. They have their story. And there seems to be a fact issue about that. But the district court seemed to get around that by saying it was a judicial admission. And I, I just, before we get into any law here, I, I just got to hear your response about whether that's correct. And, and, and if it's not correct, why it's not correct. Okay. Well, if this court decides that Forget about all the law. I'm just talking about a record question here. Okay. You went in and well, said she never slept. Um, she was a shift worker. She was on duty the whole time. Okay. The district court made a big focus about, forget about that working and sleeping 120 hours. I agree with that. It's all in a preamble. Forget about all that. I, this is not the purpose of the question. Okay. It's just, do we have a record that tells us whether she was working the whole time she was there or was she uh, sleeping for whatever time she was sleeping when we count up the hours here? Okay, Judge. Or do we have a fact issue or what do we have? Okay, so for that particular matter, Ms. Blanco testified at length at her deposition uh, that she was sleeping in alert mode. Okay, right. I mean, she was with four of the little girls for most, for a lot of the time. Right. And then with two youngest. So and then I... the two youngest. So she slept basically with one eye open. Okay, now okay. she made different references in her deposition as to what she did at night. One of the girls, the, the parents let them watch horror movies. I, I, I know what the evidence is. And then they say that room was next door. They never heard her. They couldn't wake her up sometimes. She'd bang on the door. She'd right. be sound asleep. So I'm, I'm saying, is there a fact issue about this? And it, it, is the judge right? Didn't the judge rely a lot on the, that? The admission said she was sleeping and he used that admission in the pleadings to well, say he, that? Well, he did. He, he said that because I represented at a, a right. discovery hearing that Ms. Blanco well, it was, was three hired. or four different pleadings. He said that you did that. So right. what is the status of the record? The judge treated it as a judicial, as an admission, right? Right. That she was sleeping. And, and my point is an attorney cannot undo what his client said in, in a prior deposition as to what she So do you say it's a fact issue or you say it's undisputed she was not sleeping? I'm, I'm just trying to understand about the sleeping portion here. What is it? I say that there is on that, arguably looking at it in the light most favorable to the appellees, there would be a factual issue as to whether she was sleeping because that depends on Ms. Blanco's credibility. But I also say that an attorney cannot undo what his client said. I mean, for the lack of a better so word. You basically say it's a fact issue and the district court got it wrong with saying it was... Uh, yeah, at a minimum, at okay. a minimum, that there's a factual issue. But I'm saying, we're asking the panel, don't even rely on that factual issue because this is a legal issue. She cannot be exempt under a live-in statute when she did not reside there. I mean, by a dictionary definition, by the DOL's definition. I, just a common sense definition. She didn't reside there, and the 2013 rule says it. The, the examples in the rule itself contemplate an employee who checks in Monday morning 
and leaves late Friday afternoon. And the district court just sidestepped that, turned a blind eye to it uh, altogether. So that laser focus latching on to two sentences in this preamble to fly in the face of DOL regulations and the CFRs that proceeded for decades, we just think there's a solid basis to find the exemption does not apply as a matter of law. And she was their employee. Uh, based on this record. There's no way to answer my question, and I appreciate the panel's indulgence on that. We'll go to the DOL. Okay, thank you, Mr. Zaydel. Ms. Poe. Caitlin Poe for the Department of Amicus. Um, Plaintiff was a night shift worker. She did not reside at the defendant's home within the ordinary meaning of that term nor under the department's long-standing regulations and guidance, which require for the live-in exemption to apply that the worker actually live there, either permanently or over the course of a work week. Uh, the does, district... What does an extended period of time mean to you or to the department? The work week, of at least a five-day work week, and that five days or nights language in the preamble to the 2013 final rule reflects this. It's talking about you know, at least a, a work week of five days where you work and then you sleep on the premises four nights, or as is common in home care industry and other domestic service employment, you work five nights and then you sleep four days. It's contemplating residing there over the course of the work week. Um, and that's what that language in the preamble was reflecting that the district court misconstrued. Similarly, the working and sleeping language contemplates a worker working and then sleeping, not doing them both at the same time. And to Judge Hall's question, um, whether plaintiff slept while on duty, it is working time, even if she was fast asleep. Um, the regulation at 29 CFR 785.21 um, reflects that for shifts of less than 24 hours, as is undisputed here, sleeping while on duty when you're not otherwise busy is working time. Um, so plaintiff, it, the record is, um, there's no question of fact that plaintiff, the plaintiff was working at all times while on defendant's property. She was always on duty. Um, had the district court considered uh, the text of the statute and looked to the ordinary meaning of the term reside, had the district court looked to the department's regulations, not only at 29 CFR. Tell us exactly what regulation you want us to look to and whether you want us to look to the, the final rule or not. And if so, do you want us to look to the preamble or just to what? So what exactly do you want us to consider? The regulation controlling here is 29 CFR 552.102 that governs the limit exemption. 522? 552.102 that cross-references to 29 CFR 785.23. Both of those regulations provide a helpful uh, picture of what a true live-in scenario looks like. Indeed, the principle or interpretation that under the exemption, a worker can reside for extended periods of time for purposes of the exemption itself comes from 29 uh, CFR 785.23. Um, so that regulation is relevant to the inquiry here as is the department's guidance issued under both regulations. Um, the preamble to the 2013 final rule, we agree is helpful, relevant guidance, but it is not a regulation in the way that the district court appears to have treated it as such. Um, that preamble discussion was in the 2013 final rule that was uh, issued to address you know, developments in the home care industry. It made certain changes to the domestic service employment regulations but it did not propose changes to the definition of reside. And the preamble was very clear that DOL was simply reiterating and would continue to apply its longstanding definition of reside, which requires that the- No, I'm sorry, finish. Okay, which requires that the employee actually live there either permanently or over the course of the work week. And that's what that language in the preamble is intended to reflect. And there's examples in there that bear this out that the district court just didn't engage with. Maybe you can help me with this, but the very first regulation you mentioned seems to be seems to me to be not helpful at all. It's sort of tautological, right? It says domestic 552.102A. 
I understand the 783, 8085.23, but this one says, doesn't do anything for me. It says domestic service employees who reside in the household where they are employed are entitled to the same minimum wage as domestic service employees who work during the day. However, you know, Section 213 of the Act provides an exception from the Act's overtime requirement for domestic service employees who reside in the household were employed. But it tells you nothing about what residing in the household means. Am I missing something from that regulation? No, you're not missing anything, except it does cross-refer to 785.23 in the regulation itself. It points the reader there. And it's 785.23, which includes um, the discussion of residing for permanently or extended periods of time. I know. I, I think you're right that that one is, is more helpful, but this mm -hmm. one doesn't, aside from the reference, it doesn't tell me anything about what it means to reside in a household. Yeah. We're starting there because that's the regulation that sets out the exemption for workers who do, in fact, reside. Um, it also is helpful in that it describes, again, a true live-in scenario. It contemplates a worker having both on and off-duty time on the premises and the choice of whether to stay or go to spend that off-duty time on the premises and do things like eat, sleep while off-duty, um, entertain and engage in other private pursuits. So it's at least a helpful picture of what a true living scenario looks like. Likewise, the cross-reference to 785.23 is important, um, not only to the compensability of hours worked issue that's also addressed in 552.102, but to the threshold question of whether a worker resides for purposes of the exemption. So just to be clear, um, you're basically saying it's a binary choice. You either reside in or you're a shift worker, right? I mean, like, and if you, if you're, and the way you can tell the difference between whether you're residing in, whether you qualify as residing in versus shift worker, at least in part, is you look to some of the things, some of the indices that you have, or that the regulation specifies at 502, 552.102A about other periods of complete freedom from all duties when the employee may either leave their premises or stay on the premises for purely personal pursuits, right? So, so I just want to make sure I'm understanding the argument. Basically, it's sort of a binary choice. You fall into one category or the other category. You either, either reside in or you don't reside in. Yes, for purposes of the exemption, you must live there. If you don't or reside is what the statute Okay, and, and in order to determine whether somebody resides in, some of the things we look to are the things that are mentioned in 552.102A. Exactly. Okay, got it. Thank you. Okay, but let me follow up on that then because it says one of the things you look to is whether by agreement between themselves, the amount of sleeping time is excluded from the hours worked. So, so... You can't exclude sleeping time by agreement. That is a different requirement. That's well, it's not... right here in A. Cor correct. A addresses... It says, in determining the amount of hours worked, the employee and the employer may exclude by agreement the amount of sleeping time, periods of complete freedom, and time they're away from the premises on personal pursuits. Yes, um, those are, that's with respect to whether you can exclude sleep time from compensable hours worked for a worker who resides there. Um, the language in 552.102 about, you know, the considerations um, to whether a worker resides there, it's a helpful picture. Um, it's an example of a true living scenario. These are the things you would expect uh, a worker can who... I, can, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's, when I look at it, it says... The amount of sleeping time, comma, meal time, and other periods of complete freedom from all duties. So other periods of complete freedom from all duties, does that modify sleeping time? In other words, in order to count as sleeping time under this, do you have to have complete freedom from all duties? Or can sleeping time mean that you still have to, you know, you still might have some responsibilities, and you might be able to be awakened in the middle of them. For, with respect to the exemption here, 
um, we don't need to consider whether the employer would have been able to exclude sleep time for the reside uh, for a live-in worker. There are different rules for when sleep time may be excluded from hours worked for different types of employees and different lengths of shifts. The regulation that's relevant here, because her shifts were all of less than 24 hours, um, is 785.21, and that means all of her time was compensable time. So. Um, there's no sleep time as contemplated here in the regulation that's relevant. Instead, you know, that language in 552.102 is helpful in giving an example of what it looks like for a true, you know, live-in worker. But the interpretation of reside permanently or for extended periods of time um, that's found in 785.23 and then in departmental guidance issued over decades illustrating what that looks like. And again, it's a worker living, sleeping, working on the premises over the course of a work week. So starting 9 a.m. Monday, staying there, living there, working there, sleeping there through 5 p.m. Friday. It does not contemplate you know, completing five defined shifts during which the worker may sleep, which is compensable time. So 552.102A and 785.23 in their discussion of the on and off duty time that is more tailored, it's, its direct purpose is about the compensable hours work exclusion rules, which are not at issue in this case, but they do serve the secondary purpose of giving us a helpful picture of what a true live-in scenario looks like. I want to go back to Judge Jordan's original question about where do we find the definition of resides and what regulations do we look at for that? And you've told us 552.102, right? That is where we find the exemption. That regulation does not define reside. Oh, all right. And so then is 785.23 the one that helps us with resides? It includes reside permanently or for extended periods of time. Okay, well, we know it wasn't permanent. Correct. So we, we're dealing with extended periods. Is that a definitional section for extended periods? No, and that's where we turn to DOL's guidance um, issued over the years, including the 1981 opinion letter, um, the 1988 enforcement policy reiterates those okay, principles. So we don't have a definition of for ex really for reside or for extended periods. A per se definition, we just have guidance. Correct. All right, let me also, go back to extended periods. Does it matter if it's Sunday, Saturday through Wednesday or Monday through Friday? It, do, does the day of the work week matter? Or is, it, it, it doesn't matter. No, it does not. No. Okay, so I don't need to worry that it's here. I think it was Sunday through Thursday. I believe it was. Or was it Friday? Friday. Okay, well, whatever. Um, I don't need to worry about the days. That's not it. No. Okay, so if I go to 785.23, who resides on the premises in a, or for extended periods is not considered as working all the time he's on the premises. Okay, but here you're saying we should consider her as working the whole time she was on the premises. Yes, she does not fit within the live-in worker kind of contemplated within that language. She was working at all times. It's undisputed that she all her time there was on duty time. Even while sleeping, that is working time. Okay, this says for extended periods of time are not considering as working all the time. Ordinarily, he or he or she may engage in enough time for eating, sleeping, and other periods of complete freedom. So we get that other periods of complete freedom again. Mm -hmm. And again, that leaves the premises. Yeah. But you're saying that, so this goes back to my sleep question. So does this case turn on whether her sleep, let's say she had slept in another room in this house, downstairs, nowhere near the children. Would the outcome be different here? No. Um, because, again, she was sleeping there as part of her duty time. That was the expectation that she would, um, she, that's what she was paid to do, was to be there overnight, respond to the children, and if not busy with the children, she could sleep. Um, 
of course, you know, the, the provision of a private room is another um, element of what you would expect of a true live-in scenario. Um, so Let me go back to this. So even if she was in another room, not in the room, your position would be the record supports that that was still part of her duties yes. in this case. Okay, and is there a factual issue about that, or is it just you're saying, why is there not a factual issue? So when they, they testified, whether right or wrong, I don't know, that she did sleep soundly, she wasn't expected to get up, she didn't get up, I actually got up with them sometimes, et cetera, et cetera. Why is there not a fact question about that? It's belied by the other undisputed facts in the record, which demonstrate her job was to show up at her appointed shift time, stay with the children, stay in the room with them and attend to them. Um, she was on duty. That's not disputed that she was there for her duty period. Whether, you know, she performed all her duties on any given night does not change the fact that she was there on duty on shift right, on duty period so you even accept like he did okay we'll accept she was sleeping soundly and getting rest good rest mm -hmm. you're saying it doesn't matter it does not matter no okay sleeping all right and, and i'm gonna get that from these two regulations you just some 85.23 and 552.102 the sleep time principle is in 785.21 um, regarding sleep on shifts of less than 24 hours, and that is cited in our brief. Is, does it also come from the notion that, quote, other periods of complete freedom from all duties when he may leave the premises for purposes of his own, um, which is in more, I mean, it's, that's directly from 785.23, but also in the definition of live, live I guess, live in or reside in. Um, but I mean, is the, is the idea that there was not complete freedom from all duties when she was sleeping because she was on call? Is that the notion? Yes, that's the general idea is that the sleeping time contemplated in the regulation and in the department's guidance, including the preamble to the 2013 final rule, contemplates sleeping after your on-duty working time, um, working and sleeping at different times, not a shift worker who's allowed to sleep while on shift when they're not busy. In, in that situation, she's no different under your articulation than a home health care worker who is staying overnight with a patient to make sure that nothing goes wrong or to make sure that the patient's needs are taken care of if and when they arise. Absolutely. And that's our concern with the district court's approach here. Um, if affirmed by this court, it could deprive not only plaintiff and other nannies, but other domestic service employees, including home health aides, of the right to overtime, even though they're shift workers, they show up to work, they work, they leave, and if they're allowed to sleep while on duty, that does not convert them to a live-in worker, um, excluded from overtime or exempted from overtime. Okay, thank you very much. All right, thank you. How do I pronounce your last name? Uh, Mark Butler for the parents, the appellee herein. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I'm gonna, <coughs> excuse me, I'm gonna jump around and uh, on some of these points. Um, the plaintiff's work and sleep schedule very closely matches what the Department of Labor permits for live-in workers. Um, the plaintiff, uh, Ms. Blanco, put the children to bed, did a few chores, she slept on the premises, got the children ready for school in the morning after she woke up, made breakfast for herself after the children went to uh, school, taken by another nanny, and, uh, and then she left the premises while the children were in school. And this schedule parallels the examples uh, of live-in workers in numerous places. And does it, though? I mean, in the examples that we're talking about, for example, in the preamble, we're talking about uninterrupted periods. The person comes to work and is, you know, and is there for uninterrupted periods from whether it's Sunday to Thursday, Monday to Friday, Tuesday to Saturday, whatever. They're not going home at points during the day, um, you know, and completely off call. They're, 
they're actually staying on the premises unless they're doing things for themselves, but they're not, they don't have a separate residence that they're going to for at least eight hours a day. I I'm mean, not sure I fully follow the question, but again, this schedule has been repeated in several different uh, examples of agency guidance where we have, they show up in the evening, they, they go to sleep, they get up and do some more work and then they leave for the day. Uh, and Would come back your, again in the following evening. Is and your we've position, got that in the- your, Mr. Buehler, is your position different if her hours were inverted? Uh, so for example, assume- Day or night doesn't matter. I mean, if it was- Assume the same set of facts, except the children are younger and don't go to school and the parents work. And so instead of working from um, 7 p.m. to 9 a.m., she works 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. and then goes home. Is, Is she, she sleeping on the premises? She might. Let's say they're napping. They're napping. They're, okay. they're, you know, they're babies, one year old, one and a half year old, six month old, whatever. And the parents need care while they work. And so she's got the shift from seven o'clock in the morning to 9 p.m. at night, 12 hours. And then she goes home and sleeps, comes back the next day, 7 a.m., 9 o'clock at night. Okay. And yes, there are there are moments during the day in my hypothetical. I can answer when the baby sleeps. She sleeps. I can answer your question for purposes of the exemption where where the tasks occurred during the day do not matter. Now, for sleep time exclusion purposes, which there is no sleep time exclusion issue in this case, then uh, if she the sleep has to be at night to be excluded. Why? Because there's a you, there are a lot of there are a lot of people who work night shifts and sleep during the day. Uh, so I may why, have this so wrong, but I believe that, that the sleep has to be during normal nighttime hours for the sleep time to be excluded. But again, why? that's not an issue. But my question case. is why? Uh, there are a lot of people who work nighttime shifts and sleep during the day. I, I believe the regulations provide for that. Why? I'm not sure I can answer, but it's not an issue in this case since there are no sleep time exclusion issues. So if she, so if she worked the inverted schedule that I said and slept at times when the baby slept, She's entitled to overtime or she's exempt? Oh, no, we're still exempt. Sleep time exclusion, exemption. You can have all kinds of sleep time exclusion problems. So you, would say that, so you would say that an employee who works 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. at night goes home to sleep, resides at the employer's residence. On your factual scenario, I don't believe that the employee would uh, qualify because she doesn't sleep on the residence. Uh, she sleeps naps when the babies sleep. Okay. If somebody is on duty and nods off, you have a security guard who does that or you, or something of that nature, or maybe, a, a an emergency room physician. I don't think that counts. I'm really not, I can't point to any guidance, but that's not what we have here. No, but no, I want to, I want to go back to my question. If you don't mind. Sure. Ms. Blanco does the same thing, except she's got smaller kids who don't go to school, and she works 7 a.m. to 9 p.m., goes home at night every night, sleeps, comes back the next morning. And while she works at the home from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m., when the babies sleep, every once in a while, she takes a nap too. Is uh, she exempt? Uh, I would say, is there some minimum quantum of sleep that can be part of her, her, uh, her shift that would... Uh, on which the uh, exemption would turn. I would say not in any regulation. I can say this though. So she is in, or is not exempt? Wh what's that? So my my Miss Blanco, is she exempt or not exempt? If she got sleep on the premises and she was there for the purpose, and she was there for the purpose of sleeping, she had her pajamas. She wasn't she there, there for the purpose yes. of sleeping. Yes. She wasn't there for the purpose of sleeping. She's there for the purpose of taking care of the kids. Oh, I understand that, but but... Uh, so if she gets any sleep, she's exempt. Two hours sleep was sufficient in Sebnani, the Second Circuit decision. So, so the amount of sleep, no matter when it takes place, is basically a proxy for the word resides? 
Because uh, the statute says resides. The statute does say reside. The regulation final says reside. Defines it. Extended period of time. It defines it. It calls it a definition, and this is repeated over and over again in agency guidance that this is the the, the they use the D word, the definition of reside for extended periods of time. And right. yes, is there anything in the regulation that says there's a minimum quantum of sleep that you need for purposes of the exemption? No. Now, is that a good subject for uh, an agency rulemaking? Perhaps. So if okay, so my. So, final one. My Miss Blanco now is working 40 hours a week. 41 hours, because that gets her into overtime. So, 41 hours a week. And it's every day, 9 to 5. One day, 9 to 6. She sleeps an hour per day. She takes a nap while the babies are sleeping. Does she reside for an extended period of time at the employer's residence? Normal nine to five, most people in the United States work that shift. And she sleeps, takes a nap when the babies sleep. Is she exempt? I would say without more facts, perhaps not. But if she has her pajamas and her slippers and she gets into them, takes a shower, climbs into bed, turns the light off, wakes up an hour and a half, two and a half hours and does this every day, she might be exempt. That's residence for your purposes. What's that? That's, that constitutes residence for your Under purposes. the definition provided by the Department of Labor in the final rule. There is no definition. Uh, yes, It says is. for an extended period, but the word residence is not defined. And the term for extended period is not defined. Oh, no, it is. It's in that final rule. Okay, on... no, no, no. All right, you tell me where there's a definition. Uh, the preamble expands upon it, but the preamble oh, okay. is not a rule. The or, I call it the final rule. I'm referring to the preamble, correct? Okay, tell me where the word residence is defined in the preamble and tell me where for an extended period is defined in the preamble. Um, it's cited over and over again in the brief, but it's 607 or something. But they use the word defined in the preamble and it's uh, they use the D word. It's done several times in the, in the preamble. And that... Okay, definition. It, says, it says on page 60,474, right. one, of, one of the requirements is resides on his or her employer's premises on a, quote, permanent basis or for extended periods of time. Yes. But that doesn't tell me anything. Yeah. Uh, if you this is reading, not permanent. If you keep reading, it says extended period of time means, if keep reading the same paragraph, Employees who work and sleep on the employer's premises for five days a week, 120 hours or more, are considered to reside on the employer's premises for extended period, periods of time. Correct. But Keep under my hypotheticals, Ms. Blanca was under the 120. Keep reading. You'll find that. It's if less one. than 120 hours per week, five consecutive days or nights is an extended period of time. That's correct. So they No are, matter how many hours are worked. In fact, the word, regardless of the number of hours worked, is stated, not there, but in agency guidance that parrots that language. So, so, so all this depends on sleep? It does. And that is how the rule is defined. Now, can somebody say, perhaps we need a, a rulemaking and change this rule because I could see problems with it? That's a fair argument to make. But we can hold the Department of Labor to the position it takes in the, this preamble to the final rule well, and in its subsequent agency guidance, which basically says the same thing. But, but if we're looking at the preamble, it says employees who reside on the employer's premises five consecutive days from 9 a.m. Monday to five until 5 p.m. Friday, sleeping four straight nights on the premises would be considered to reside. In, in this case, she's working during the nights, but she is going home during the day. It's the opposite. In other words, in the preamble, she is, or he, is there for a continuous period of whatever it is, less than 120 hours. Here, we have 79 hours, and they're punctuated by periods where she is not at the house. It doesn't seem to me that it, it qualifies under that. I don't see how that matches up. Uh the examples provided in the in the preamble are not exclusive and they do not limit the definitions supplied by the Department of Labor, Labor 
in the rule. And there are other examples in the final rule and in other agency guidance, which I have identified, uh, I was identifying when I started, and I, I'll just list them. There's um, the university student in the final rule on 6492, there's fact sheet 79D, the example of Wendy, there's the 1988 enforcement policy. Slow down, because you did say there's lots of guidance, and I, I want to make sure I get what you're saying. Uh, could you repeat yourself, uh, Judge Hall? Can you start over with the guidance, the first section? I didn't get the first section. Yes, um, and some of it's in my brief, but uh, on page 6492, we're dealing with a university student, um, and he has a schedule similar to Ms. Blanco. Is this uh, in the preamble? This is in the, in the preamble, that's correct. Um, there's the uh, example of Wendy in fact, she's 79D. Again, she cuts out through the middle of the day. She's there to help out in the morning, there to help out in the night, and between the night and the morning, she sleeps. Uh, there's, there's the uh, 1988 enforcement policy. It's cited by the Department of Labor, and they have an example of an employee who, again, does the same thing. Do you have a site for the 1988 enforcement policy? What is that? I do. It's cited in the Department of Labor's brief, but it's 1988 Westlaw 614199. And then Tell me that again, please. 1988 Westlaw. 614199. Then we have the Field Administrator's Bulletin 2016-1. It's attached to the, it's in the appendix. Um, and we have another example of somebody who... I'm sorry, I didn't catch that last one. Say that last one again. Field Administrator's Bulletin 2016-1. It's in the appendix, the, uh, the plaintiff's appendix, uh, tab D. And um, then we have Administrator's Interpretation 2014-1, Note 22, uh, and that's in the Supplemental Appendix. Uh, again, we have each of these promulgations contain examples of workers who work in the evening, work in the morning, sleep in between, and leave the premises during the middle of the day. And the DOL, in all cases, refers to them as hid-in employees. Um, so plaintiff's work schedule creates no overtime exemption problem. Now, as far as, um, uh, the fact that the plaintiff is required to be on the premises, that doesn't create an issue either. Uh, I mean, she's not allowed to stay on the premises between when she finishes her shift and when she starts the next shift. She can't stay there for the next eight hours or 10 hours, right? Uh, I don't know if that's true. I think uh, she, she is there by herself for the very end of the shift. There's nobody there. And then the other nanny comes in and, and relieves her. Right. But is it in the record as to, like, if she wants to just hang out there all day long, is that in the record somewhere? Either way, uh, no. But my understanding is that nobody, nobody was kicking her out. It's not in the and, record. And sometimes they did depart from the schedule. Does she have a key to the premises? She doesn't, right? No, but she testified so that the place is, is never locked. She can't really come and go as she wants. I mean, if she doesn't have a key to the premises. She testified that the place is never locked, and it is never locked because they have a 24-hour operation. There's always somebody uh, at the premises. All right. Let me ask you a question about these regulations because I, I'm just trying to figure out how to, you know, read sure. it as a comprehensive scheme. So, um, so the regulation at 29 CFR 552.102A yes. talks about um, in determining the number of hours worked by a live-in worker, the employee and the employer may exclude by agreement between themselves the amount of sleeping time, meal time, and other periods of complete freedom from all duties when the employee may either leave the premises or stay on the premises for purely personal pursuits, right? That's what it says. That's what it says. Okay. That is a sleep time exclusion issue. All right. And well, it's not present in this case. Okay. I understand that, but I think it can tell us something about what we're looking for when we're looking at residing in. Okay. I mean, if my question for you is, it and if, if we go down to 29.785.23, that also uses similar language. 
other periods of complete freedom from all, okay, enough time for eating, sleeping, entertaining, and other periods of complete freedom from all duties when he may leave the premises for purposes of his own. And so with the words other periods, the use of the term other, doesn't that suggest, or why doesn't it suggest, that when we're talking about eating, sleeping, well, at least sleeping anyway for purposes of this case, that we are necessarily talking about it has to be a period of complete freedom from all duties when she may leave the premises for purposes of her own. Why is that not the case? Because uh, 785.23 comes from part 785. 785 deals with hours worked and how you calculate them. The exemption comes from part 552. and uh, It's the same language in 552 as we just discussed. I mean, 552 it's not... is saying that these these employees are exempt, but you still got to deal with minimum wage issues and 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 paying them for every, for, for the hours that they work, and then it, it says hours worked, more discussion about hours worked, more discussion about hours worked, and even more discussion about hours, about hours worked, and then it cites part seventy. Right, but but we're talking about uh, yes, it's trying to distinguish between what hours you have to pay them for versus what hours you don't. But the whole point is that the reason you have to figure that out is because they are residing there. And so why doesn't that, at least to some extent, inform the definition of reside in, right? Reside in, um, when we're talking about someone who's there for fewer than 120 hours. Because everything, and I mean everything written by the Department of Labor on this subject, proceeds from the premise that, uh, you know, these are separate inquiries. Are you exempt? And is sleep time to be excluded? And oftentimes it's implicit, not always. Uh, this scenario is repeated over and over again. Bobby is a live-in employee. Uh, the employer has all these sleep time exclusion issues. Here, here, the DOL is going to explain how you resolve these sleep time exclusion issues. But Bobby's a living employee, as you know, and this happens over and over again. And that's what I mean by implicit. Now, uh, it's not always implicit. If you look at the um, uh, um, Field Operations Handbook, uh, Chapter 25, uh, it says that, uh, and I have the language here somewhere, um, it says, regardless of whether they're exempt or not, you still got to pay attention to these sleep time issues. Uh, and then, it, uh, and then uh, this was a brief that was filed by the uh, Secretary of Labor in a case in 2008, which the Department of Labor cited in this case. And I, I looked at that brief and I looked at, I found this in, uh, in footnote nine, it says, uh, and, and it's cited in my brief, it says, uh, we don't even look at 785.23 unless the person is deemed to be residing in, in the, uh, you know, in, in the premises, uh, on the premises. So clearly the, the department uh, views the two inquiries as separate. Are they exempt? Uh, do we have sleep time exclusion issues or how are hours worked uh, being dealt with? That's certainly the, the, the operating premise in the Second Circus decision in Subnani. Subnani. I'm, I'm, I'm confused. Are you saying we don't need to get to sleep time exclusions? We just need to decide whether she's exempt or not exempt? Is that what right. you're trying to tell us? Yes. Okay, so don't, don't get into any of the sleep time exclusion issues. But the... We is, should be, is that uh, what you, I'm just trying entire, to understand what you're saying. Is that what you're saying? That's right. But, but she's the, exempt or she's not exempt. She's living or she's not living. And how do we decide that? You say just look at what? The definition. The definition in the preamble and which is recited in agency guidance over and over and over again. And And the definition is basically... If she's sleeping and working on five consecutive nights. Sleep and work five consecutive nights. Correct. So you're saying Days or that's nights. all we have to do. Sleep and work 
five consecutive nights. And are you saying it doesn't matter whether the sleep is work or not? Uh, suppose the sleep is not really sleep, it's work. Um, um, or does it matter? Okay, sleep time, time that you're sleeping is not work time um, uh, in, this, in, this, in this context. And that goes- but, but Let me ask you this though, because I want to make sure I understand. Let's say that one of the children starts crying, has to go to the bathroom and is scared, wants someone to go with her. Does she, does she have the choice to just say, you know what, go ask her mom, I'm, I'm kind of tired. No, she is sleeping there with the uh, understanding that So doesn't that, that she, mean she's working? I mean, why is she not working if she's on call? She is, um, because in this particular context, and this goes back to Skidmore itself, which dealt with this, this issue, uh, you can require someone to be on the premises and you can exclude their time that they're spent sleeping from work time, unless they're called to duty, in which case, if they're called to duty for the time that they're on, on duty and called to duty during their sleep time, they have to be paid for that. But the employers here didn't exclude any of that sleep time from compensation. That's right. Uh, that's why we, we don't have a sleep time exclusion issue here because, and there's the other hoops you have to jump through too to get sleep time excluded. But we didn't do that here. You just said she's residing because she sleeps and works there 120 hours or less than 120 hours. Five consecutive days or nights, correct. But don't those examples talk about being at the employer's residence for a, a non-broken up period of time? Uh, again, one, I would say that the... Like, for example, the one where you work less than 120 hours, it's five consecutive days. Con all time, you're at, the, you're at the premises, regardless of any hours you're working, you are living at the employer's premise. Okay. Right? That's not what's happening here. The examples in the, in the, that you're referring to, which are in the same paragraph that we've been discussing, uh, where we have the definition... Uh, they do not, they're not exclusive. They do not limit the definition supplied by the DOL in this rule and elsewhere. Uh, and there are other examples in the final rule and elsewhere in which, which I have, which I've discussed where that isn't the case, uh, but they are still living employees. And so uh, I would look at administrative interpreter interpretation 2014-1, uh, which makes clear that residing for an extended period of time means work and sleep in the household, five consecutive days or nights, quote, regardless of the number of hours, unquote, at the home. That can't be right. That's what it says. I'm telling you, that can't be right. Because if it, the, the hours at the home do matter. If not, they couldn't be a residence. Oh, no, I, I'm not sure I follow. Why is that? I mean, that is the definition that, that the, the agency provides. You have, and to, you have to be in a place for the place to be considered your residence, right? You have to work and sleep there, yes. Okay, so the number, the amount of time you spend there has to matter, right? The, the example you just gave, the 2014 whatever, says that it doesn't matter the amount of hours you spend at the place. It says regardless of the number of hours. In other words, they start talking about 120 hours and, th and then they say, uh, and if it's less than 120 hours, then if it's you work and sleep on the on, in the household, uh, you're, you know, you, you're there for an extended period of time, regardless of the number of hours. Now, is there some implicit uh, number of hours in there? Not, that, not from what I can read. There has to be. Extended period of time has to be, you think it's, is it more than 50% of a, of a week? Uh, if I were to write the rule, what would no, I do? I'm yes, you, I'm asking you as an advocate. As an advocate, it, I can come up with a lot of scenarios where we, uh, which aren't relevant here, where we we start pushing that line farther and farther and farther, much like you're doing. The rule does not, you know, the, the agency guidance does not speak to that, and maybe it should. It just doesn't. Okay, thank you very much. We've taken you way over your time, but we appreciate the help. Yes, what, what the district court <clears throat> did and what Mr. Butler is suggesting is that working and sleeping is really tantamount to working while sleeping. 
And that's a quantum leap under these regulations. It's not. Working and sleeping is not working while sleeping. It makes no sense in light of decades of the DOL and the CFR regulations holding to the contrary. If we go back to the preamble again, uh, nobody's mentioned that it is the department's intention to continue to apply its existing definition of live-in domestic service employees. They made it clear in the preamble, they're not changing the definition of what a live-in worker is, and their intention was to give more rights to workers for overtime and minimum wage, et cetera, et cetera. The district court's order flies in the face of all of that. And like I, I started by saying, the district court really had to, for the lack of a better uh, description, bend over backwards to fit Ms. Blanco's job into this very limited exception. I mean, even under the fair reading standard uh, that the Supreme Court announced in Encino in 2018, this isn't fair. You can't call a shift worker a live-in domestic worker. That's not fair to anybody. Uh, but the district court insisted to do it anyway. Now, replying once again to Judge Hole, I've had a chance during the interim to look through my brief. If you look at uh, the DOL Field Assistant Bulletin number 2016-1, that speaks to that the employee, uh, it defines sleep as being able to enjoy an uninterrupted night's sleep. And the regulation goes on to discuss that five hours is, is generally the benchmark that the DOL is looking to, to determine whether somebody gets an uninterrupted night's sleep. And there's other uh, opinions that say that can be broken up, but as long as there are five hours, cumulatively speaking, of uninterrupted night's sleep, that can qualify. But as uh, Ms. Poe said, we're really not talking about that here because Ms. Blanco was on duty at all times that she was sleeping, if she was sleeping uh, at all, but based on her deposition testimony. So we are um, asking the court, and, and I filed this recently in response to supplemental authority that Mr. Butler filed. Uh, Judge Rosenbaum authored the Thompson versus Region Security Services case earlier this year. And we find it highly, highly relevant to the issues here. In Thompson, the issue was uh, the term hourly rate or regular rate and it, how it was not defined under the DOL's guidance. This court looked to ordinary di dictionary definitions and looked to the DOL because the DOL is the one that is best suited to determine these definitions and issues. Um, as, uh, as that opinion says in Thompson, um, that they found the DOL's power to persuade applicable as a uh, pursuant to the Skidmore decision because it preserves what the Supreme Court has said is the congressional purpose behind the FLSA's overtime provisions. And it's to spread employment by placing financial pressure on the employer through the overtime pay requirement. That is exactly what these employers have tried to sidestep in this case. Uh, these are Harvard law graduates. Both of them were barred in New York. They were licensed attorneys. Both of them said repeatedly in the depositions, I don't know, I don't know. Uh, Mr. Samuel says that he doesn't even know what law school means, even though he graduated from Harvard Law School. So, and, and, and uh, Ms. Finch says she doesn't know what overtime is. So their, their, their strategy for the case, at least based on my view, is to say, you know what, this is your case, prove it. We're not going to prove it for you. But the problem is, this is an overtime exemption, and it is the employer's duty to prove that exemption. It is not Ms. Blanco's duty to disprove it. By them saying constantly in their depositions, and I urge the, the panel to, to review it, uh, to review their testimony, they don't know. Even though uh, Samuel was right in the room next to Blanco. I'm sure you have an answer for this, but i got to make sure I understand it. And I, this is in the preamble. It's right in that 120-hour week paragraph. It's got two sentences. Employees who reside on the premises five consecutive nights from 9 p.m. Monday until 9 a.m. Saturday would be considered to reside in the, the premises for an extended period of time. It doesn't get into when you're working. It doesn't get into when you're sleeping. It just says if you're there 
five consecutive nights from 9 p.m. to 9 a.m., which he was, you reside there. And help me get around that. Well, it says Monday through Friday or Monday. Okay, well, the sentence above it, it says, for, so you would say it's Monday through Friday. Okay, it says, for example, but anyway, then right, right above it, it says, for example, and it didn't have the Monday and Friday, employees reside on the premises five consecutive days. Well, actually, that one says Monday until Friday would be residing the premises. Right. And then that's so exactly you're saying you ignore those because they say Monday through Friday. Yeah, that was for a reason. That wasn't just arbitrarily put in there by the DOL. I mean, they're contemplating an employee who lives at this premises. Monday, Monday through, through Friday. Friday during the week. Yeah. The yeah. whole time. Yeah, not coming and going and coming and going every day. No, shift. it says 9 p.m. to 9 a.m. Yes, Monday through Friday. I think you're interpreting it to mean the 9 a.m. or p.m. where it starts is the Monday. The 9 p.m. or 9 a.m. when it finishes is the Friday. Yeah. It's not the sequential day, 9 a.m., 9 p.m. Correct. Right? That is the way you're reading that provision. Right. That it's 9 a.m. on... Okay, so they got to stay there the whole time. The whole time. Yeah, that's how you... Getting or at least have access, meaningful access uh -huh. to the place. And they can't do that without a key, like Judge Rosenbaum said. So we thank you and ask you to reverse uh, on all grounds and enter judgment in Ms. Blanco's favor on all issues that we're appealing. Thank you. All right. Thank you all very much. It's been helpful. Well, we're in recess for today.